Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, John Paul Jones, American Admiral. Now let's get started with our story about John Paul Jones. Considered a hero of the American Revolution, John Paul Jones was born in Scotland, carried out most of his naval exploits in the British Isles, and died in Paris. His most famous encounter, a victory over the British warship HMS Serapis, took place off the coast of Yorkshire, England, thousands of miles from the American colonies. When the revolution concluded, there was no immediate need for an American navy, and Paul Jones was forced to seek employment as a mercenary in the court of Catherine the Great. Subsequently, amid a sex scandal involving an underage female, he would return to France, where he died, alone. It would be over a hundred years before John Paul Jones's body was even located, the Protestant cemetery that he was buried in long since consumed by the suburbs of Paris. John Paul Jones was born John Paul Jr. near Kirkudbright, Scotland, on July 6, 1747. His father, John Paul Sr., was a gardener and property manager at Arbigland, an estate owned by William Crake, a wealthy Scottish landowner. Paul Sr. was a landscape architect who supervised other servants on the estate, but still very much a member of the lower class. This social status would greatly influence John Paul Jones, and from a young age, he would be driven by both ambition and resentment. One of the areas in which upward social mobility was still possible in 18th century England was in the merchant shipping trade. Considering Paul Jones's humble social standing, a position in the Royal Navy was out of the question. In 1761, at the age of 13, Paul Jones was apprenticed to the Friendship, a typical merchant ship of the day. The Friendship was a relatively small craft, but still manifested all of the risks that sailing entailed in the mid-18th century. Merchant ships were both filthy and dangerous. Sailing in the North Atlantic, frequently in terrible weather conditions, meant climbing up masts and along sails that were unstable and slippery. A fall to the deck or into the water was typically fatal. Living conditions in the interior of the ship were abominable, with most crew members existing and sleeping within inches of each other. Sailors would wear a single set of clothes for months at a time, the salt and grease that built up considered insulation against wind and weather. Showers were non-existent, and seawater temperature typically prevented basic hygiene. The toilet, or head, was a hole cut into the front part of the ship, cleansed when waves entered and receded. Although failure to use proper toilet facilities would be punished, inclement weather, illness, or injury frequently necessitated that a crew member relieve himself below decks. Rats and lice were commonplace, along with the diseases that these vermin typically facilitated. Merchant shipping was a for-profit enterprise, which meant that ship owners and operators would spend as little as possible on crews and provisions. Drinking water would typically be rancid within weeks. Food consisted of some form of meat, salted or pickled in brine, 
worm-infested biscuits that could crack a tooth, and rock-hard lentil or navy beans that were used for a soupy porridge. However, seamen were typically better fed than most of the population. One of the reasons an individual would choose this occupation was that back on shore, food was even scarcer and life tougher. A ship's crew also was issued a daily ration of alcohol, either a half pint of rum or a half gallon of beer. Rum would be mixed with water, the resulting cocktail known as grog. Constant alcohol consumption also elicited violence, accidents, and insanity, an everyday component of the harsh and demanding existence of the 18th century merchant sailor. Within this environment, John Paul Jones quickly mastered the basics of sailing on a ship. Luckily for Paul Jones, three years and eight voyages after his apprenticeship began, the owners of the friendship were forced to sell the vessel, and his servitude was canceled. He spent the next three years on board two ships involved in the slave trade, literally transporting captive Africans to Barbados and Jamaica. The conditions on these notorious blackbirders were horrific, with slaves below deck shackled and stacked on top of each other. Many died before they even made it to the New World. Whether it was a principled response to such an endeavor or merely revulsion at the appalling conditions on such a ship, Paul Jones literally quit midway through his voyage aboard the Two Friends. Stranded in Kingston, Jamaica, Paul Jones was fortunate enough to run into a ship captain from his hometown willing to transport him back to England. It was also fortunate for the crew of the ship, the John, that Jones was on board because both the captain and his first mate quickly contracted yellow fever and died. Only Jones knew how to navigate back to Kirkudbright, an ultimately successful voyage that so impressed the owners that they hired Paul Jones to captain the ship on its next voyage back to the West Indies. At the age of 21, John Paul Jones was already a ship captain, quite an achievement for an individual without any solid business connections. Just as opportunity smiled, Paul Jones would become involved in the type of incident that foreshadowed his entire life and career. Even in an age of smaller physical dimensions, Jones was a diminutive five foot six inches tall, and he already showed signs of a short man's personality and predictably volatile temper. On the John's second trip back to the Caribbean, the captain got involved in a personality conflict with a crew member, one Mungo Maxwell. Mr. Maxwell was a member of a prominent Kirkudbright family, arrogant and not comfortable with taking orders from the son of a landscaper. Paul Jones had him flogged, and Maxwell quit when the John landed in Tobago. Mr. Maxwell was angry enough to sue Paul Jones in a local court, an enterprise that went nowhere, and ultimately he joined the crew of another ship bound for Scotland. Months later, when John Paul Jones subsequently returned to Kirkudbright, he was arrested, literally on the town dock. It seems that on the way home, Mungo Maxwell had died of an illness, and Maxwell's well-connected family was able to conflate this into a charge of murder. Paul Jones had to bail himself out of jail, get a court to allow him time to gather evidence, and spend a great deal of effort to get the charges dismissed. The experience left the young man with even greater resentment towards the status quo. This incident does not seem to have damaged Paul Jones's sailing reputation, as he was able to find a position on board the Betsy, another typical London-based English merchant ship. In January of 1773, he left England bound for another journey to the Caribbean. The trip would be anything but uneventful and would seem another example of Paul Jones's egocentric and impulsive personality. Upon arrival, Paul Jones withheld the crew's pay, ostensibly to finance additional cargo purchases for the return voyage. 
Such an inconsiderate measure was bound to stir up resentment, and during the physical conflict that inevitably ensued, the captain felt it necessary to run through a particularly large and hostile crew member. The specific details are lost to history, but despite his claims of justifiable homicide, Paul Jones was now involved in a very serious situation. Unfortunately for the captain, the dead sailor was a Tobago native. Although Paul Jones initially felt that he would be vindicated, he eventually decided that he could not leave his fate in the hands of a local jury. He crossed the island and made his way to the continent. Virginia, where his brother lived, was the destination. By the time he got there, the alias was assumed. From now on, he would be John Paul Jones, a change necessitated by the fracas in the Caribbean. In Fredericksburg, he was immediately greeted by bad news, the death of his brother having occurred the previous year. He received nothing in the will, and having left Tobago with essentially the clothes on his back, Paul Jones was quickly in dire economic straits. Luckily, he was a member of the Masons, having joined in Scotland after his initial maritime successes. He made the acquaintance of some local members of Scottish origin who lent him money and got him back on his feet. Paul Jones also attempted to acquire social status and wealth the old-fashioned way by marrying it. He briefly attempted to court Dorothea Dandridge, a daughter of a well-connected family and granddaughter of a former Virginia governor. Paul Jones was rebuffed, his lack of economic resources undoubtedly an issue, and Dorothea wound up becoming the second wife of the governor of Virginia, Patrick Henry. Presumably, Dorothea's existence was more pleasant than the fate of Henry's first wife, Sarah Shelton Henry. When, after 18 years of marriage and six children, Sarah started to exhibit signs of mental instability, her husband had her locked in the basement of their plantation home. After four years of virtual confinement, she died and was buried on the estate in an unmarked grave. His love life notwithstanding, John Paul Jones was in the front row to observe the colonial resentment that seethed against the British crown. A Scot familiar with British repression in his own homeland, Jones already had a strong motivation to join the cause when open rebellion broke out in the colonies. Economics also played a part in his decision to offer his services to the young nation's political leadership. His former partners in the Caribbean, understanding that he was in no position to contest their actions, never forwarded any of the money due Jones from his voyages on the Betsy. For Jones, the American Revolution was a fortunate turn of events because he had very limited opportunities left to him as a merchant seaman. Unfortunately for Jones and the colonies, they would have to face the most powerful navy on earth with a force that would have to be assembled from scratch. The effort to build an official American fighting force was headquartered in the city of Philadelphia. Paul Jones went to Pennsylvania in the summer of 1775, intent on getting a commission in the fledgling Navy. His Masonic connections came in handy again when a member of the Naval Committee charged with finding officers, Joseph Hughes, turned out to have a business connection with Masons from Paul Jones's hometown of Kirkudbright. By December of 1775, he was a first lieutenant in the Continental Navy and the temporary master of the Alfred, charged with getting this former merchant ship ready for battle. Jones spent the next six months aboard the Alfred, ranging from the Chesapeake to the Bahamas as a member of a flotilla of ships charged with harassing the massive British naval presence that dominated the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic Ocean. Despite occasionally engaging the enemy, Paul Jones was frustrated by the leadership of the captain of the ship, Dudley Saltonstall, a well-connected relative of another member of the Naval Committee. 
In May of 1776, Jones was pleased to be offered the command of the Providence when the ship's captain was court-martialed for stealing the ship's provisions. Although Paul Jones would enjoy a very productive few months of capturing smaller British merchantmen, he would typically avoid the larger British frigates. His 12-gun sloop no match for the well-armed British ships of the line. He was nothing more than a military privateer, the ships commissioned with official letters of marque that allowed captains to seize and sell off any ships captured from the British. Jones impatiently longed for the day when he could captain a much more dangerous ship, and he was quite vocal in his complaints to the Naval Committee, a tendency that ultimately earned him a reputation as an egocentric malcontent. Even in such a young country, politics and social standing continued to play a major role when it came to assigning ships and the Continental Navy. Because he had not been commissioned as a captain, John Paul Jones was far down on the Naval Committee's official seniority list, a situation that compelled him to give up command of the Providence and cool his heels until he was assigned to another ship. This despite his success of the previous year, essentially the only bright spot in a dismal naval operation that allowed the British Navy to blockade American cities and sink shipping at will. Jones' demotion and his position on the seniority list personally enraged the thin-skinned commander, and he unleashed a new round of letters upon his patrons on the Naval Committee. It would take 11 months before Paul Jones would take command of a recently constructed 20-gun sloop of war called Ranger. Congress and the Naval Committee were eager to send warships to France in an attempt to divert British attention to Europe. Getting Paul Jones away from the regional favoritism and politics of the colonies would be a positive development. By the time Jones actually arrived in France after a month-long voyage, the bleak political outlook of the first years of the Revolution had been transformed. British surrender at Saratoga had convinced the French that the American effort was viable and could be exploited in many different ways. In fact, part of Paul Jones's mission to France was to officially inform the government of the American victory, although a faster French merchant ship delivered the news first. Paul Jones was not disappointed. He was about to implement the second stage of his mission, an ambitious plan formulated during the many months of inactivity. Unlike most of the captains of the Continental Navy who were either terrified of actual combat or more interested in capturing smaller craft they could ultimately sell, Paul Jones wanted to bring the war to the British homeland. He hoped to periodically land Marines at various points in the British Isles, launching quick raids to burn and sack sparsely defended harbors, generating fear and unease among the local populace. A precursor to 21st century terrorists, Paul Jones understood that this type of psychological warfare was far more valuable than any single victory over the most powerful naval fleet in the world. It would take an additional four months, but in April 1778, John Paul Jones and the Ranger would pull up anchor and leave the relative security of an officially neutral France headed for the British mainland. His initial route took him into the Irish Sea, between Wales and Ireland, his ultimate destination, the English town of Whitehaven, where his seaman's apprenticeship began his sailing career at the age of 13. Before he got there, Paul Jones would have to face down a crew which bordered on the mutinous. The Ranger had been built in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and as a condition of assigning it to John Paul Jones, its influential builder had insisted on a crew, both sailors and officers, made up of mostly of familiar New Englanders. These men were hoping to return to the colonies after delivering Paul Jones to France, their only interest in combat, the acquisition of ships and prize money. An invasion of the English coast by a reckless foreigner would have been the last thing on their minds, and they aimed to prevent this foray by seizing control of the ship and sailing it back to America. 
Only a tip by the single loyal officer on the craft, a Swedish mercenary, prompted Paul Jones to be ready when the ship's master attempted to subdue him on the ranger's quarterdeck. He placed a pistol to the man's head, convincing him and the rest of the crew of his determination. Although the mutiny was nipped in the bud, Paul Jones would admit later that he got very little sleep for the rest of the voyage. Jones got into the vicinity of Whitehaven Harbor and was actually in the process of assembling a boarding party when the weather turned against him, threatening to capsize any invasion force and possibly even beach the ranger. Paul Jones retreated back into the Irish Sea where he unsuccessfully tried to sink a British cutter. The smaller, faster craft successfully escaped and was able to warn the entire countryside when it returned to port. Paul Jones decided to head west to Ireland and the port town of Carrickfergus, where some captured fishermen told him a 20-gun British ship, the HMS Drake, was quietly anchored. The only plan his uncooperative crew would agree to was an attack after nightfall, and his drunken, incompetent officers handled this attempt so ineptly that the ranger had to flee before the Drake even suspected its presence. Undaunted, Paul Jones decided to head back across the Irish Sea to Whitehaven and another midnight raid. A landing party of 40 men was assembled and placed into two separate boats, one group led by Jones, the other consisting of many of the less enthusiastic critics of the captain. Wind condition forced the ranger to anchor a great deal of distance from the harbor itself, so it took several hours for the expedition to row its way into the town's proximity. Paul Jones landed and personally began spiking the guns of the two batteries that protected the harbor, his group subduing the handful of sentries in the process. The other boat's crew came ashore at the town's wharf and proceeded to the nearest public house, aggressively pillaging and consuming whatever spirits they could lay their hands on. To make matters worse, a member of the invasion force was an Irishman whose sole intent on enlisting was to return home. As soon as he hit land, he began to run from house to house, alerting the locals that a pirate was in their midst, intent on burning their town and everything in it. Paul Jones's group did succeed in setting fire to at least one small boat, but as the townspeople began to angrily descend on the harbor area, it was decided that the mini-invasion should be wound down. With the batteries rendered helpless by Paul Jones's clever precaution, the two longboats made it back to the ranger without incident. Although the Whitehaven raid was militarily harmless, it did cause a sensation across Britain, with accounts of the event appearing in the London newspapers. But Paul Jones was intent on immediately attacking other personally symbolic objectives. On the same morning of the Whitehaven raid, the ranger sailed 20 miles north to the mouth of Kirkudbright Bay. John Paul Jones was now set on entering the harbor of what was practically his hometown, proceeding to the small Isle of St. Mary's Isle and kidnapping a local lord, the Earl of Selkirk. Ultimately, it was hoped that the Earl would be swapped for the numerous American sailors currently rotting as prisoners in both English and North American dungeons. This time, Paul Jones took one boat, bringing all of the malcontents with him, as well as a dozen sailors. Now was not the time to be left behind. He quickly navigated the way to the beach in the vicinity of the Earl's mansion, marched up the path to the estate, and scattered any hired help by announcing to a gardener that he was leading a British Navy press gang. The announcement removed any immediate threat, but the gardener also informed Paul Jones that the Earl was not home, gone for the foreseeable future. For the captain, that meant an immediate return to the ship, but his officers demanded that they at least be allowed to pillage the house of any valuables. Not wanting to push his luck, Paul Jones agreed to allow his men to steal the silver, but exacted a promise that no one be physically harmed or other property damaged. 
This group of brigands proved quite a shock to Lady Selkirk, who was at home and who dutifully surrendered the valuables, thankful that she wasn't dragged on board the Ranger as well. Back on board the Ranger, John Paul Jones was still not ready to end this practically Python-esque adventure and head back to France. Only a day later, April 24, 1778, he was back at Carrick Fergus looking for HMS Drake. By now, the Drake had been warned of the American privateer and was eager to investigate the mysterious ship that stood at the entrance to Belfast Luff. Paul Jones kept his gun ports covered and most of his men below decks. Challenged by the Drake's Captain Burden, the Ranger hoisted the stars and stripes and the fight was on. Drake's 20 guns versus Ranger's 18 meant a very evenly matched battle that would be decided by tactics and skill. After only an hour of broadsides and maneuvering, Captain Burden and his second-in-command were both dead, victims of snipers situated in the Ranger's main top, a platform built high above the deck in the ship's mast. The Drake's sails and rigging were virtually shot away, leaving the boat helpless. The British surrendered. John Paul Jones had achieved a major naval victory. Satisfied that he had finally accomplished something of substance, he eluded several other British ships sent after him and headed back to France. To man the Drake and get it back to port, where it would be sold off as a prize, Paul Jones appointed Thomas Simpson, one of the officers most vocal in his criticism during the voyage. At the first opportunity, Simpson broke off from the Ranger and headed independently back to the French coast. Although Simpson claimed it to be an honest miscommunication and mistake, this was just one of several fiascos that dogged John Paul Jones for the next nine months. The captain insisted on an investigation of Simpson's disrespectful maneuver by colonial leadership in France, a demand that further alienated the crew and some of the members of the American government in Paris. Ultimately, Simpson would sail the Ranger back to Portsmouth, leaving John Paul Jones behind. The plan was to get Paul Jones another ship and turn him loose upon the British Isles again. It would not be until June of 1779 that the French ship Duc de Duras, an older, slower craft which at least carried a respectable 40 guns, would be renamed by Paul Jones the Bonhomme Richard and prepared for another foray into British territory. Bonhomme Richard was the French translation of Poor Richard, a salute to Benjamin Franklin's almanac and the support of the American ambassador to France. Franklin remained one of Paul Jones's main supporters despite the various political intrigues of the French court and the political machinations of the Continental Navy. The good news was that Paul Jones would be leading a squadron of five ships, including his own. The battle group would include the 42-gun Alliance, 26-gun Palace, 12-gun Vengeance, and small cutter Le Cerf. The bad news was that the alliance was captained by Pierre Landais, an erratic individual who would prove to be as much an obstacle to Paul Jones's mission as the English themselves. Although John Paul Jones was nominally in charge of the expedition, the French government had essentially financed the purchase and upkeep of these ships, and his commands would frequently be ignored by the French captains who accompanied him on the voyage. This loosely commanded group, accompanied by two French privateers that would leave the squadron almost immediately, departed France on August 14, 1779, bound for the southern Irish coast. The mission? Destroy any British merchant ships they encountered along a circular route around the British Isles. Only days later, off the coast of Kerry, Paul Jones's squadron became completely disorganized. In calm seas, the Richard was confronted with running aground against the Skelligs, the two rocky islands at the mouth of Dingle Bay. Paul Jones immediately ordered his largest small craft into the water, a barge that would help row the ship out of harm's way. Unfortunately, this craft was manned predominantly 
by Irish sailors, roughly half of Paul Jones's crew was either English or Irish, who took this opportunity to cut the tow line and row towards their homeland. Another boat was lowered into the water. Twelve men, including three officers, sent hastily after the first craft. They immediately disappeared into the fog, and when they failed to return that evening or the following day, August 24th, the surf was sent in their general direction. When the surf finally sighted the smaller boat, it was mistaken for a British ship, and the twelve men decided to take their chances and land on the Irish coast, where they were all promptly captured. The captain of the surf chose this time to return to France, subsequently claiming that bad weather and an encounter with an English ship necessitated his return. Paul Jones had already lost two boats, a considerable number of crew members, and an 18-gun ship. Much more alarming, the news of another voyage by the pirate John Paul Jones made its way from the Irish countryside to the newspapers of London. Luckily for Paul Jones, the British Navy assumed that he would take another stab at Whitehaven and concentrated their reconnaissance efforts in the Northern Irish Sea, far south of the intended mission. While the rest of the squadron cooled their heels, waiting for news from Le Cerf, Captain Landay met with Paul Jones on board the Richard and upbraided him for ordering the fleet to a standstill. He was allegedly frustrated by the delay which he claimed had cost him an opportunity at some English merchant ships in the area. Most likely, Landay was setting the stage to basically break off from Paul Jones's command. When it became clear that neither Le Cerf or anyone else would return, Paul Jones ordered that the voyage continue northward. Overnight, both the Alliance, captained by Landay, and the Palace, ostensibly to repair a rudder, disappeared. The Bonhomme Richard and the Tiny Vengeance sailed on towards the northwest Scottish coast, capturing the merchant ship Union on the way. At the northern tip of Scotland, at a prearranged point, the four remaining ships of the squadron reunited. Despite Captain Landay's capture of a merchant ship of his own, he was still in a foul mood, now greeting some of Paul Jones's men on his ship with insults and even a challenge of a duel when the two commanders returned to France. No sooner had Landay sent both merchant ships to Bergen, Norway, in further defiance of Paul Jones, did he then disappear again, refusing to even meet with the squadron commander. For ten days, the Bonhomme Richard, Palace, and Vengeance headed south, arriving at the Firth of Forth in the vicinity of Leith and Edinburgh. Here, Paul Jones actually floated the idea of storming Edinburgh and holding the relatively defensive city for ransom. Various rebellions over the years caused the English crown to virtually disarm Scotland, and Paul Jones assumed a few hundred crew members would be sufficient to extort a great deal of money. The captains of the palace and the vengeance fled, wanting no part of such an operation. But Paul Jones went as far as assembling a raiding party of boats and formulating a ransom note before the weather turned against him and a gale pushed his ship back towards the North Sea. Ultimately, he thought better of this bold scheme and headed south in search of additional prey. As he reached the coast of eastern England, John Paul Jones began to rapidly seize smaller merchant ships and terrify the local citizenry. But Paul Jones was no longer interested in an amphibious assault. From some of the captured crew, he learned that the best of all opportunities was headed in his direction. An entire Baltic convoy of over 40 merchant ships laden with goods and supplies meant for the British war effort. John Paul Jones turned his ship around and headed north to a spot between the English towns of Scarborough and Hull, a peninsula of land that jutted out into the North Sea called Flamborough Head. Along the way, on the morning of September 23, 1779, the ship caught sight of the Alliance, missing for over two weeks, Palace and the Vengeance, all intent on attacking the convoy. Of course, such a fleet would not be unescorted, 
and would have at least one British Navy ship providing protection. Most captains might have attempted making short work of a few prizes and sneaking off before getting involved in armed conflict with a stronger foe. But John Paul Jones had always been motivated by more than the typical financial opportunities available to most wartime sea captains of his day. Initially scorned by the British Navy, frustrated for months in both North America and France by regional politics and creaking diplomacy, John Paul Jones burned for the opportunity to inflict a stunning blow that would shock the world. On the afternoon of September 23rd, with the convoy and two British warships clearly on the horizon, he would finally get his chance. Captain John Paul Jones headed directly for the larger of the two ships. Despite such bravado, the odds were not in the Bonhomme Richard's favor. Directly in his path stood the 50-gun frigate HMS Serapis. With 20 18-pound cannon to the Richard 6, the British clearly had the edge in firepower. The Serapis was so new that its hull featured a copper bottom, an 18th-century state-of-the-art technological advance that prevented a speed-reducing marine layer. Captained by Richard Pearson, with three decades of Royal Naval experience, its crew would be a well-trained, disciplined fighting force. By comparison, the Bonhomme Richard was an antiquated, lumbering tub. Captain Pearson, completely confident of the outcome of any potential battle, had his men nail the ensign of the Royal Navy to his stern, a clear message to all that his colors would never need to be struck. The other ships of the squadron peeled off, the palace to successfully engage and capture the second British warship, the 20-gun Countess of Scarborough, the alliance to stay out of harm's way, and the vengeance to observe. It was seven o'clock, the water off of Flamborough Head's chalky cliffs tranquilly still, the sun setting and a large harvest moon already rising in the evening sky. As the Bonhomme Richard pulled even with Serapis, its starboard right side only a couple dozen yards away, the American ship was hailed by Captain Pearson. As a ruse, the Richard was flying an English flag, and Paul Jones ordered that a fake name be hollered back. Pearson was not fooled. He demanded the exact origin of the ship. As John Paul Jones ordered that the British flag be struck, the red, white, and blue be raised, and a broadside fired. Serapis instantaneously fired back. The battle was on. Unfortunately for the American ship, its antiquated weaponry quickly presented Paul Jones with a major disadvantage. Upon firing, two of his 18-pound guns exploded, killing several crew members and immediately minimizing his ship's firepower. The Serapis used its speed to implement several advantageous maneuvers, gun crews pouring on the broadsides. Unable to match the British ship's speed or weaponry, John Paul Jones quickly realized that his only chance was to attach his ship to the enemy and board the Serapis, turning the battle into a veritable street fight. The Bonhomme Richard rammed the stern of the English ship, grappling hooks and ropes tossed over the side. But the angle of the American vessel was too extreme, and the small number of Marines and sailors attempting to board was easily repelled. Paul Jones then attempted to cut in front of the bow of the Serapis to escape its continual broadsides and rake the British ship with whatever firepower he had left. Pearson ordered a maneuver out of harm's way, but the lack of wind prevented any rapid course change. The bow of the Serapis collided with Bonhomme Richard, and its proximity allowed for another grappling attempt that was more successful. As the main top sharpshooters swept the deck of the British ship, American crew members were able to lash the Bonhomme Richard to the Serapis. Hoping to unsnarl his ship, Captain Pearson even dropped an anchor, hoping that staying stationary would allow the tide to pull the two boats apart. It didn't work, the anchor getting caught up with the Bonhomme Richard and further binding the two vessels. 
The battle had raged for close to 90 minutes, with the Bonhomme Richard already suffering serious casualties. The Serapis continued to blast away below decks, literally sending cannonballs completely through the Richard. Even for an 18th century naval battle, the chaos, carnage of blood and body parts, and screams of the wounded must have been horrific. As if he did not have enough to deal with, Paul Jones received word that his ship was taking on water and was in the process of sinking. Several fires raged on the decks of both ships, now completely attached, bow to stern. At this point, the Alliance actually crept into the vicinity of the battle, and Captain Landes let loose a broadside into the fray. Circling the melee, the Alliance fired again and then disappeared, this inexplicable action killing several of the Richard's crew. Paul Jones ordered that lanterns be placed strategically, signaling his identity should Landé reappear. It is now a matter of historical debate as to when or even if John Paul Jones actually uttered the famous phrase, I have not yet begun to fight. But if there ever was a moment for him to say it, now was the time. Some of his crew members, fully aware of the damage done below, unlocked the dozens of British prisoners on the verge of drowning in the hold, clambered onto the deck, and not seeing the captain began to shout for quarter from the other side. Paul Jones was intent on knocking down the Serapis's main mast with his personally manned nine-pound gun. Upon hearing his own crew attempting to surrender, he first tried to shoot at them with an unloaded pistol and then hurled it as the startled sailors fled below deck. Knowing his fate to be either imprisonment or even the noose, the captain had clearly adopted a much more modern outlook. Failure was not an option. Hearing the commotion, Pearson asked if the American ship had struck. Most likely, Paul Jones's response was not as theatrical as chronicled, but he certainly made it clear that he would rather sink than surrender. Sensing victory at hand, the British captain quickly sent his own boarding crew over the side. Frantic hand-to-hand -hand fighting ensued, ultimately forcing the boarders to withdraw. Ten o'clock. After three and a half hours of savagery, both ships were badly damaged. Amazingly, Captain Landé chose this opportunity to re-enter the conflict and fire another indiscriminate broadside. Just as quickly, he sailed away again. The two deadlocked ships continued the battle, the Serapis' guns reducing the hull of the Richard to a tattered wreck, the sharpshooters on the American ship's mass platforms picking off anything that moved. At this point, an enterprising sailor decided to climb out on one of the Richard spars, which was overhanging the deck of the Serapis. Armed with a torch and several naval grenades, he proceeded to toss them in the direction of an open hatch. One explosive clambered through the opening and into the interior of the ship, igniting numerous gunpowder cartridges stacked hastily during the battle. A tremendous explosion ensued, disabling many of the Serapis's 18-pound guns. Paul Jones's steady 9-pound assault had concentrated on the British ship's mainmast, which was now held in place merely by the ropes of its rigging. At 10.30, Captain Pearson made a difficult decision, asked for quarter, and tore down the British naval ensign with his own hands. An American boarding party conveyed him to the deck of the Bonhomme Richard for the formal surrender. John Paul Jones accepted the captain's sword and graciously returned Pearson's weapon as a sign of respect. John Paul Jones had little time to savor the stunning victory. The Bonhomme Richard continued to take on water, and despite two days of effort, it subsequently sank. Paul Jones transferred his command to the Serapis and successfully sailed the ship to the Dutch island of Texel, fulfilling the original orders to the squadron. It was initially intended that the warships escort a convoy of French merchant ships back to France. Now these orders proved problematic as the British immediately blockaded the area and exerted pressure on neutral Holland to force Paul Jones to leave. 
The incompetent Lande would be relieved of command and the alliance placed under Paul Jones, but it was not until February 1780 that he eluded the British and arrived back in the French port of Lorient. John Paul Jones became a celebrity both in Europe and America. Even in Amsterdam, where he ventured during his internment in Holland, crowds followed him whenever he appeared in public. Upon his arrival in Paris in April 1780, Benjamin Franklin formally presented him to Louis XVI, who awarded him the Order of Military Merit, designated him a Chevalier, the French equivalent of knighthood, and bestowed a specially inscribed gold-hilted sword. His bust was sculpted by Jean-Antoine Houdon. Thirty-two years old, polished and soft-spoken in person, Paul Jones made quite an impression on Parisian society. A lifelong Lothario, he no doubt put his newfound fame to good use. In the colonies, Paul Jones's victory received special attention, especially because American maritime successes against the British were exceedingly rare. It was the intent of the American government to re-equip Paul Jones and send him on another expedition. Surprisingly, that never happened. For the duration of the American Revolution, John Paul Jones did not engage in any meaningful military combat. His dream of extracting American prisoners for those he captured off of Flamborough Head came to nothing. His crew would receive very little compensation, mostly from Paul Jones out of his own pocket, for the valuable ships that were seized. The Countess of Scarborough became a French merchant ship. The Serapis, a French privateer that burned in 1781 off of Madagascar. Through various machinations, Pierre Landais was actually renamed the captain of the Alliance and sailed it back to Philadelphia, where his bizarre behavior got him replaced by John Barry. Because he placed himself in harm's way and successfully prevented any of Paul Jones's ships from attacking his convoy, Captain Richard Pearson became a hero and was knighted by King George III. After returning to the colonies, John Paul Jones essentially waited as a new ship, the America, was constructed for him at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He would interact with Washington, Lafayette, and various other members of the American military and expound upon the need for the formation of a permanent American Navy. At the conclusion of the war, the U.S. government was in severe financial straits and a Navy would have to wait. In 1784, Congress at least agreed to send Paul Jones back to France in an attempt to receive payment for captured prizes and salary for his former crew. As it lurched toward bankruptcy and its own revolution, the French government was reluctant to part with much money. John Paul Jones unsuccessfully attempted to get a commission in the French Navy and upon returning to the U.S. failed again to convince anyone of the importance of a permanent fighting fleet. 1787 found him back in Paris, where Ambassador Thomas Jefferson presented an interesting possibility. The Imperial Russian court of Catherine the Great was engaged in an ongoing Black Sea struggle with the Turks. Might John Paul Jones be interested in serving Catherine at the head of a Russian fleet? With little prospect of anything else meaningful, John Paul Jones headed off to St. Petersburg. Catherine the Great had heard of Paul Jones via her French ambassador, and flattery in the rank of Rear Admiral was enough to get him to Russia. Nothing that he had previously experienced would prepare him for the duplicity and self-interest of the Russian court. When John Paul Jones was assigned to the Black Sea Fleet, he was ordered to report to none other than Grigory Potemkin. The Empress's former lover had intrigued his way into the command of Russia's regional military effort, a major initiative in the country's perpetual quest for a southern sea route. Potemkin had complete control over the army and navy with an authority that was virtually autocratic. Although Catherine the Great promised John Paul Jones a great deal of autonomy, realistically Potemkin could do whatever he wanted with him. Most of Potemkin's focus was on seizing Turkish forts by infantry attack, and he had little interest in naval affairs to begin with.
He also had several admirals at his disposal already, and where Paul Jones would actually fit in was unclear. This chaotic recipe ultimately turned disastrous. Pavel Ivanovich Jones would last about six months before jealous colleagues and his own temper got the best of him. After an impertinent letter of complaint to Potemkin got him relieved of command, he returned to St. Petersburg in December of 1788. There he awaited reassignment, but the English mercenaries in Catherine's Baltic fleet flatly refused to serve under him. In April of 1789, the capital was shocked by an allegation from a 10-year-old girl that she had been lured to John Paul Jones's apartment and there sexually assaulted. The girl turned out to be 12. The charge appeared to be essentially the type of blackmail routinely exacted upon prestigious men, and Paul Jones was never formally prosecuted. But in an official police report, he admitted that he knew the girl, that she had visited him in his apartment on many occasions, and he had given her money following these visits. That was enough to brand him a pariah in Russian social circles. By June, he was given an official leave of absence and the strong hint to get out of town. After a tour of various European capitals, most likely in search of employment, Jones returned to Paris in May of 1790. France was now in a revolutionary state of flux, and the adulation and glamorous environment of the previous decade had disappeared. Physically worn out by strenuous years at sea and depressed by his circumstances, John Paul Jones could do little more than call on the American embassy, write numerous unanswered letters, and take long walks in the Luxembourg Gardens. C'est la vie. The American ambassador, Governor Morris, found John Paul Jones to be a tiresome pest. However, when he received a message in July of 1792 that Paul Jones was gravely ill, he proceeded to the captain's rented apartment on the Rue des Tournons. There, he had Paul Jones compose a modest will and hastily left for a dinner engagement. When he returned later that evening, he found John Paul Jones dead, face down on his bed, his legs in a kneeling position on the floor. He curtly informed Paul Jones's landlord that the deceased should be buried as modestly as possible, most likely because he feared that he personally would be stuck with the bill. Luckily, officials of the French government became aware of the naval hero's demise and, incredulous at the ambassador's response, took charge of John Paul Jones's burial. Because he was a Protestant, John Paul Jones could not be buried within the city limits of Paris. His funeral procession, approximately 20 minor functionaries, and a few American acquaintances walked the four miles to the only Protestant cemetery in the vicinity. Governor Morris did not attend, his only further involvement the seizure and auction of Paul Jones's uniforms and decorations, including a gold medal struck by Congress. These items disappeared, but Morris did reserve the ceremonial sword bestowed by Louis XVI as a keepsake for the relatives. Only three weeks later, in August of 1792, the King and Queen of France would be arrested, Paris would plunge into the reign of terror, and the Protestant cemetery would be closed. John Paul Jones languished in obscurity for over 100 years. As the city of Paris expanded, it covered over the small cemetery with full-fledged urban dwellings. It took a determined American ambassador and the patriotic fervor of President Theodore Roosevelt to congressionally underwrite an archaeological dig. This needle-in-a-haystack proposition at least had the knowledge that Paul Jones's undertakers, presuming that eventually America would come calling, buried him in a lead coffin sealed in alcohol. It took five years and the exhumation of a dozen graves, but in 1906, when his coffin was opened, John Paul Jones was so well-preserved that his face was instantly recognizable. Dimensions from the Houdon sculpture confirmed his identity, and following an autopsy that attributed his death to a combination of kidney failure and pneumonia, 
John Paul Jones began the lengthy journey back to his adopted homeland. His casket, now encased in polished wood and the American flag, was paraded through the streets of Paris, accompanied by hundreds of American and French military personnel. Transported to Cherbourg, it was loaded on the USS Brooklyn and accompanied on its transatlantic voyage by a flotilla that swelled to 11 warships by the time it reached the Chesapeake Bay. It would take seven more years to construct a suitable repository for the mortal remains of John Paul Jones, appropriate for a man who spent much of his career impeded by the indecision of others. As he lay dying in his Paris apartment, John Paul Jones did not know that a courier was en route with an appointment signed by both President George Washington and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. Paul Jones was to be designated as a special envoy to Algeria in an attempt to mitigate the transgressions of the Barbary pirates. Most likely, he would have been resigned to his demise, victimized by his own difficult personality and a world that had moved on. In life, he never quite lived up to either his own expectations or the failure of others to recognize his potential. In death, he would be stunned to learn that he would spend immortality in a magnificent sarcophagus in a crypt beneath the chapel of the U.S. Naval Academy, enshrined forever as the father of the American Navy. Thank you for listening to this podcast about John Paul Jones. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, John Paul Jones, A Sailor's Biography by Samuel Elliott Morrison, and The Admiral and the Ambassador, One Man's Obsessive Search for the Body of John Paul Jones by Scott Martell. Also the U.S. Naval Institute's The Resurrection of John Paul Jones by Captain Patrick Grant at the Naval Institute's website at usni.org. For information on how to access this material and for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com. Thank you.